The story of the universe is an epic evolutionary tale of awesome scope. It speaks of unity and diversity, of creativity and imagination. It is the story of science, it is the story of spirit, it is our story. This is one in a series of podcasts from Green Spirits, the Universe Story event, held in London on the 14th of March 2015, recorded and engineered by Richard Adams. Today, the evolution of cooperation and transformation by Elizabeth Sartoris. So a lot has been said about evolution and the way in which we human beings are wrapped up in this evolution. And all too often what is meant by evolution is thought of in terms of Darwinian conflict. And that we now have Elizabeth Sartoris giving a picture of evolution which is a much deeper and more ecological way of looking at everything. Wonderful reminders of the past today. <laughs> I am on my way from seven years in Spain, mostly on the island of Mallorca, to Honolulu, following a spirit call that came to me in Findhorn on October 1st, <laughs> saying go to Hawaii, and I knew it meant not for a visit. I've had them before. They've taken me to Peru, to Washington, D.C., to various places in the world. And as I was going through my things and throwing out tons of old writings that I did on Greek islands in the 80s and where I wrote my first book, Earth Dance, I ran into an old letter from Tom Berry, written by hand, wonderful letter in which he mentions working with Brian Swim on a book. And then Brian wrote the introduction to my book, A Walk Through Time, From Stardust to Us. So thank you all for being here to listen. This was me at, uh, I don't know, four years old or something, playing under the very trees that I got to visit again on my 50th high school reunion years back. And it was wonderful to still see them there, my old friends, the trees. And as I say, I always wanted to know who are we, where did we come from, where are we headed? not knowing those were the great philosophical questions of the ages. So I spent my life exploring the world, Peru, one of the places the spirit call took me, searching for the answers to those big questions that science wasn't answering for me. <laughs> now, we humans always have been storytellers. That's kind of our big claim to fame. We can make things up. We can talk to each other about our experiences, not the way our cells commune, but as communicators. We invented language, and then we externalized it in books, as uh, in writing in books, as, as uh, Greg mentioned. And uh, so this makes us different. Our cells commune with each other. Otherwise, you wouldn't function very well if they weren't in contact and didn't know what was going on. But being storytellers is interesting because through the kind of stories we tell through communication, not communion, you can distort realities 
and deceive each other and things like that that you can't do with communion. So our perceived realities are very much colored by our stories and beliefs. We see what we believe. We don't see what we don't believe. Right? So it's very interesting how important story has gotten. You know, 20 years ago, you couldn't use the word story to most people in our culture because that was classed as fiction, not fact. Right? And then you find out eventually that it's really all stories when you get down to it. And every human culture has had some kind of a cosmology, a creation story that, you know, frames its people's realities in particular ways. So for a very long time, well, long time from our perspective here now, the religions that we came to create have been our main story. Our chief creation story has come from these either the Abrahamic religions or the Eastern religions. And one of the things that's very interesting about these two kinds of religion, basically, that we have uh, in our world is that the, the Abrahamic religions tend to have a creator God that stands outside the universe and creates it. Whereas the Eastern religions, like Hinduism and Buddhism, have a self-creating universe. It operates from within. There's no chief deity doing this. The whole is the deity. Brahman is everything. Right. So in the West, through the recent history, we had the Enlightenment, and then that led to an industrialized culture and secular states in which the authority for telling the creation story was shifted away from religion and to science. Our Western science, and you just heard some of that story of evolution, looking into this cosmic past, sees a meaningless, purposeless universe, a vast power, but doomed to run down via entropy to no nothingness, nothing, zero, nada. Bleak story. On top of that, we get biology coming in through Darwin, telling us that life is a fierce struggle in scarcity with our consciousness as a late emergent property of evolution. And that emergence has led now to emergency, as Helen just mentioned. Yeah. This is a, the bleakest creation story I've ever run into. I've worked with a lot of indigenous cultures and looked back at, at uh, others in the world. And we applied it to our economy. Economists took the simplistic version of Darwinism, this self-centered, greedy, competitive human nature, applied it to the whole global economy by now and put us into the sixth great global extinction by doing so. So we're the first species ever to cause an extinction. Closest that any other species ever came to it was the ancient bacteria who caused some major disasters, as I'll mention in a minute. But the dinosaurs did not cause their extinction. 
and we seem to be hell-bent on doing so. It's a problem with a creation story like that, and one wonders, you know, how would aliens look at us, or how do they look at us, as the case may be. Would they consider us intelligent, destroying our infrastructure that we depend on? We're now dealing with this popcorn effect of problems, and we don't know what to do with it. It's terrifying. There's so much of this is going on. And we're in denial, many of us, not the people in this room. We're here, aware, imaginal cells in the butterfly. Must you know that metaphor? Um, but a lot of the world is, is seriously in denial about what's going on. And I think we're really terrified of ourselves because deep down we know that we're causing this, but we're stuck in it. We feel powerless. We don't know what to do with it. And the creation story anyway says it's all doomed. It's all going to hell in a handbasket because of entropy, right? <laughs> so if you look back at Darwin, you see that he actually got his evolution theory from his friend Thomas Malthus, family friend of the Darwins, who actually says, Darwin actually says, it's the doctrine of Malthus, speaking of his evolution theory, applied with manifold force to the whole animal and vegetable kingdom. Anybody remember what it was that Malthus came up with, what his main conclusions after researching the world was? Malthus was an econ economist sent by the first great multinational, the East India Company, to see what was going on in the world and came back with, anybody know the conclusion? Humans always outstrip their food supplies. They multiply too fast and they use up the food and we're doomed. Okay, that's the competition in scarcity. And that seemed to Darwin to fit what was going on in nature, that there was always competition, made the best man win kind of thing going on there. Fierce competition as human nature is what we grew up on. And what happens when you grow an economy on that basis? We drove consumer demand. We had to shop. Even after 9-11, Bush president had shopping bags in the shape of, with, with American flags on them. If you're a good American, you'll go back out and shop again. I mean, <laughs> no wonder we panic and deny and yet keep shopping. So I think what we really need, you know, is a more inspiring story of who we are that we can live by to bring about the future that we want to bring about. So I look back into the history of science and of biology and um I spent 13 years in Greece looking into their past, their science, and the Greeks named science literally philosophias, friend of wisdom, the lover of wisdom who looks to nature for guidance in human affairs. Darwin was looking at nature, but maybe there's a different story in nature. Maybe it's not all as bad. And it was really my purpose in, in studying science that I thought science would give us the answers that would guide us to 
Where did we come from? Where can we go next? So I became an evolution biologist because that made me a deep pastist. And if you're a deep pastist, maybe you have a better idea of where you can get to in the future. So I had to ask, who are we really from an evolutionary perspective? Are things as grim as, as I was taught? Are we really doomed to endless hostilities and scarcity? So I look back at that uh, Darwinian evolutionary struggle model, and I found that it was only in the capitalist West that we really followed Darwin so religiously, if you like, simplistically and religiously, because Darwin is much more complex than than what the economists took up as the basis for economics, which is not a science, but uh, operates on this simplistic Darwinian view of humanity. In the Soviet Union, they were teaching evolution biology through Pyotr Kropotkin's book called Mutual Aid. And it was about cooperation in nature. And he acknowledged Darwin's importance, but he said the, the really important thing about biology, about evolution biology, is how cooperation comes about. And without it, you know, shows clearly things wouldn't work. So nature is doing both. It has both competition and cooperation as part of it. And when I looked at even what Western science was saying about biology, the ecologists were showing us that there were different kinds of ecosystems. And type one ecosystems were identified as pioneer, notice the word, they're actually very Darwinian. In, in a type one ecosystem, the different species are scarfing up the resources, hogging the territory, multiplying as fast as they can, and being highly competitive. But then you look at a type three ecosystem, which is called a climax. Notice pioneer to climax. It's very Kropotkinian. The species are sharing the territory more kindly. They're sharing the resources. They're making things for other species that work well. They're highly cooperative. Now, if you ask about type twos, they'll say, uh, it's just transition, um, a mixed kind of thing. Okay, they're, they're very vague about type twos. Now, do you see any kind of idea here of pioneer to climax? Why did they name them that? It looks kind of like a progression rather than there are different kinds of species, right? And what they say is the cooperative species replace the um, competitive species. Replace. I saw a maturation curve here. It's something here about growing up, you know, doing things differently, starting out by competing and learning to cooperate. So I came to this cycle of maturation, some of you have seen in my books, where you start with a unity and it differentiates into individuals, okay, a mother giving babies or an earth creating bacteria or whatever it is. There's this differentiation out of a unity. And when you have lots of individuals, there's a natural not, they don't all have the same self-interest and they get competitive. 
So you get tensions and conflicts and things like that building up. And eventually what happens is that it gets too expensive to keep bumping off your enemies and you start negotiating ways of working together that are more efficient. And as this process moves along, you get resolutions to some of the con to some of these conflicts. You do conflict resolution and actually come out with big cooperative schemes that make for type three ecosystems. And then you can end up with a whole new unity at a larger size level. And when we look through biological evolution, we see this pattern very clearly. Going back to uh, the early stages of bacterial evolution that Greg was talking about, and thank you for a wonderful context setting, Greg. Um, I could call my story of evolution bacteria are us. And it was uh, Lewis Thomas, a wonderful scientific essayist, who actually said, maybe the ancient bacteria built us as big taxis to get around in safely. <laughs> well, he's being vindicated, isn't he? I mean, now in the past five or six years, suddenly gut bacteria have exploded onto the scene, and in some cases into people's tummies, creating uh, candida. <laughs> right? um, and we're learning how important our gut bacteria are, that they're running 80% of our immune system, that what we put into our mouths is terribly important for our health. And so many practitioners now are finding that you can cure chronic diseases with diet while medications aren't working. It's amazing, this explosion of understanding about our own riders. Greg mentioned 50 trillion cells in our bodies, maybe 100 trillion if there's one more division squeezed in, right? And uh, they're not clear on which number. I'm never clear which number to use. And if you consider that you have 100 times more than that bacteria riding on your skin and inside you, then you're like big taxis for them, really. So going back to the early Earth, when they were populated only by the archaebacteria, or archaea, as they came to be known, you see that they caused worldwide crises. And Greg alluded to the fact that the first fermenters, uh, and then there were the photosynthesizers. Well, those first fermenters were living on sugars and acids that had formed chemically on the Earth's surface. And they ate them all up, and there was starvation. They caused global hunger, literally. And photosynthesis was the solution to the global hunger because there were still minerals, sunlight, and water. And they learned how to make food from those simple things that were left. They were so successful that they... Um, in, in harnessing solar energy to do that photosynthesis. They were so successful at it that they caused the second great crisis, which was global pollution from all the oxygen they were generating, which was a very corrosive gas. So then the breathers, as Greg also mentioned, had to be invented, right, uh, as a solution to using that oxygen for burning up your food as we do as breathers. 
And they even invented things like electric motors, these ancient bacteria, um, which have 40 components, rotors, statters, camshafts, all of this stuff that, that we much later invent without even knowing that they did it long ago. That's a very interesting thing to think about. They even created the first World Wide Web. What was it? Information exchange through DNA. Any bacterium on Earth, even to this day, can rub up against another one and transfer DNA. And I think bacteria invented viruses as DNA packets that they could store the information in. When I was young in school, they kind of implied that viruses came before bacteria because they're simpler. But viruses can only reproduce inside a cell, so they had to, the cell had to be there first. So I believe that bacteria invented viruses. And then the big step in the maturation cycle, again, as Greg mentioned, they evolved a huge cooperative cell. Yes, all of this in the world of ancient bacteria. So here's his, remember that bacterium he showed you? Mine has a few extra cilia on it. <laughs> and this, the cooperative cell, that's like the marble versus the beach ball, or the gym ball, right? The nucleated cell. So you've already heard a little bit about this story about how the different lifestyle bacteria got together to form this cooperative. That is the first great step after the formation of bacteria is this cooperative cell that we are made of. It was so good that they never had to reinvent another kind of cell in all of evolution. And they go on for a billion years going back to juvenile mode because they're new on the planet. So they get feisty and competitive and creative and inventive and, and a gazillion kinds of protests develop, evolve over that next billion years. And we get the next stage, multi-celled creatures. The new cooperative, again, it gets too expensive to beat off your enemies and it's more energy efficient to cooperate. And often, again, as Greg said, driven by crises. So if you remember one thing from this talk, remember this, that creative, mature cooperation is cheaper. Feeding your enemies is cheaper than killing them. Feeding your enemies is cheaper than killing them. That is a huge economic advantage to cooperation. That's what we have to get in this world. So nature always integrates opposites. It doesn't think of our, our politics. Our, here in England, you tried a, a cooperative government. It hasn't exactly worked out wonderfully well, but it was a first experiment within the, the world of so-called democracy, to try to do this. And it's exactly what has to be done because nature is very conservative with the things that work well and gets radically creative when things don't work. Right? So this should be a division of labor in a government where you figure out what works well and that we want to protect. You conservatives work on that. What isn't working? We radicals or left-wingers or whatever you want to call us will work on the change, right? But you do it openly and cooperatively between you. That's the way of the future. 
So we had all these global extinctions along the way. Many new species appeared together as whole ecosystems, not rabbits in habitats, but rabbitats. Nature is integrated. The whole thing is, is, is evolving at once. Everything is in interaction with everything else through communion. And crises always bring about the possibility for new creativity. And that's why this is the most exciting time to be on Earth, exactly because of that. We can and we must reinvent our whole world. And nature is showing us the way. Mind, matter, process, structure, all inseparably connected in life's evolution. It's a kind of egg-shaped world there because the screen is apparently stretched. Some, some of, sometimes my television set does this. <laughs> and suddenly you think somebody's gained an awful lot of weight. The Santiago School of Cognition, founded by Umberto Maturana, who with Francisco Varela in, uh, came up with the, the definition of life that's autopoesis, self-creation, a self-creating living universe system, said cognition brings the world forth through the process of living. It's all like big mind with little minds within the big mind. And we, we humans, we're a big brain experiment for which the results aren't in yet. We've survived about a dozen ice ages as humans. 99% of human history were hunter-gatherers among other large mammals. Do you think we would have survived without cooperating? I don't think we would have survived without cooperating. I think when you look at 32,000-year-old art, where the animals are depicted with this kind of grace and beauty, that there's something more than just making an icon of the guy you're going to shoot. There's something more here. There's love here. I have a very psychic friend who took one look at that picture and said, amazing, the different horsalities are very distinct. I can't say personality, right? <laughs> the different horsalities, the minds of those horses are there in those drawings the way a Tibetan tanka can radiate information from it. So do these cave paintings do the same. And I can imagine being a Stone Age woman in a cave and saying, Mama Bear, come and sleep in my living room this winter. I promise to keep the kids quiet if you keep them warm by letting them snuggle up with you. Why not? How do we know? How many of you have seen Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams? Too bad more of you haven't. Look for it. It has a few flaws, but it's a magnificent trek through 32,000-year-old art. So we've had about 100,000 years of cooperative communities, including our first cities. Only now are we digging up the first cities in the Amazon, in the Orkneys, in South America, that's the Amazon, Africa, Middle East. They're showing up all over where tribes got together and formed the first cities as trade centers. Now, 
When you fly in an airplane, you look down at cities that have grown naturally rather than being pre-planned. They all look like cells on a substratum. This, the first cities are the equivalent of the first nucleated cells. They are human cooperatives built peacefully for people to come together to do their economics and perhaps worship whatever. Okay, so we've been through this already as humans. The ancient indigenous people already figured this out, this maturity curve, and did these cooperatives. And only for about 6,000 years, since cities were new, they had to do what the cells did. The nucleated cells were, were new. They went through the competitive phase, so the cities became empire builders. We are now in the third phase of empire building. Lots of indigenous cultures had sciences. They lived easily in now and in linear time. Very sophisticated stuff came up long ago for humanity. And if we look at some of our cultures, the Eastern sciences, such as Vedanta and Kotodama in Japan, consciousness is the source of all reality. The universe is big mind, as I like to call it. It's the source of all reality, and it is all reality. How come Western science doesn't think like that? Because Western science came in an era where inventions were new, clockworks, things like that, and the, science, the inventors of machinery saw the universe as non-living and mechanical. So it, Western science rejected the inner ways of knowing and only looked out because they're creators of mechanism. They're made in God's image, according to Descartes, so they too can be engineers like God was. So they're only looking at the outer creations. They're, they're Christians, remember, so they have a God that's outside the universe creating it. And it's creating, God created the universe as a set of mechanisms and then put some God mind, according to Descartes, into man so that he too could invent machinery. So they weren't interested in that messy inside stuff that was way too woolly to deal with. So they swept consciousness under the rug. They didn't allow for intelligence or purpose or creativity in the universe. It was mechanical. And they, of course, took God out of his position eventually and decided that man could understand a universe without making up gods, you know. We were the inventors of machinery, so if nature was machinery, we could figure out how could it, ha if it had no purpose, if it had no intelligence behind it, it must have happened by accident. And so they used to tell us in graduate school that if enough Boeing 707 parts were flying around in a hurricane, eventually uh, a 707 would assemble itself. <laughs> or if you put 100 monkeys or 1,000 or whatever at typewriters and had them bang on them, eventually one would write a Dostoevsky novel. Right? These, these were men sitting in their ivory towers. You cannot tell such stories to women because women will think, Oh my God, the monkey doo-doo, the rusting typewriters, the ribbons piled up, the, oh, you know, what a mess to find, you know, the goodies. <laughs> it just wouldn't fly, right? But these men never cleaned up after themselves, you know. 
<laughs> so they could think up stuff like that. Now, if you look in Webster's Dictionary, you'll see a definition of reality that says reality is non-derivative experience. This is very, very interesting because it means whatever you perceive is your reality. Hmm. This gets confusing because uh, how do you deal with the fact that no two people can have exactly the same perceptions of things? We are individuated in very interesting ways. And so let me just stay with that thought for a moment. Um, I have a, an informally adopted son in the Peruvian Andes, and in his culture, this is exactly the definition of reality, everyone's experience. And what their first cultural rule is, don't distort your experience to manipulate me. If you tell your experience true, I will accept it as your reality without having to make it mine. Now, I remember Dr. Phil on Oprah once said 90% of arguments between people would disappear if we all got that. Because if you're saying, why did you tell me to turn right last night when we got lost and I should have turned left? I did tell you to turn left, darling. You weren't listening. No, you didn't. Right. If you didn't have a tape recorder on in the car that night, you can do this endlessly as a bullying match. Who's going to win? Right. One of you has to concede in the end to the other or you walk away mad or whatever. If you just say, well, I guess we have different realities. We were in different realities last night and drop it. <laughs> OK, we'd get along better in the world. Anyway, don't have too much time here. So I asked myself, what if evolution is an intelligent improvisational dance? All life happening within cosmic consciousness. What would it be like with each of us building our reality, our world, from stories, from our personal perspectives, from our emotions, from our values? What would it be like? The six men, the blind him. Do some of your mem family members live in a completely different reality from yours? How many have family members whose reality is very different from yours? <laughs> look at that. Look, look around. Did anyone not have the <laughs> We live in a world of multiple realities, and we've got to get that, and we've got to learn how to get along rather than bullying each other into a single story. How are we going to get along? Science itself rests on cosmologies, on a worldview, on a set of fundamental assumptions, sometimes glorified as axioms. Okay? You cannot make a theory about the universe without having some concept of what a universe is. So you have to make up a story about the universe that seems reasonable to you from your perspective in a particular historical time and place and particular culture. So Western science decided, number one, this is a non-living universe. It is a universe we can look at objectively as if we are outside it. Greg also touched on that idea. Consciousness emerges somehow magically late in evolution, and life comes from non-life. And boy, has a lot of attention been given to trying to figure out how that can be. 
Now, when I give a talk about the living universe, sometimes a scientist will saunter up to me after and say, loved your poetic metaphors. If you don't use mechanical metaphors, they're poetic, if you use metaphors of life. But of course, it's not really science that you're talking, is it? <laughs> I say, why do you say that? Because you can't prove it. Prove what? You can't prove this is a living universe. Oh, could you explain to me how you proved it was a non-living universe? You don't have to. <laughs> Why is that? Because it's obvious. <laughs> well, it hasn't been obvious to a lot of other human cultures. Of course not. That's because they're pre-scientific. <laughs> and I decided I had to do something about that. There was something wrong with their side of the story. <laughs> So I started doing international symposia on the foundations of science, first to track the paradigm shift, and then realizing that a paradigm shift is a competitive replacement model, a conquest model, and that we, what we really need is to show that science is always built on a conceptual story and that the conceptual story can differ and still have a science built on it a legitimate science. Science is about getting your knowledge through research rather than revelation. So the research can be done on any foundational story. No science is possible without assumptions, as I'm saying. To theorize about a universe, you have to have a concept of a universe. So whether consciousness creates matter from within or whether matter creates consciousness is a matter of belief. It's a matter of axiom, what they call the scientific foundational belief about it. You can, you can believe it either way and build a science. So two different cosmologies can give us two completely different sciences. You can have a science in which life arises through a series of fortuitous accidents, or you can have a science in which life arises by self-organization in a living universe. It's a matter of belief. And I came to use this metaphor, given that we know now that the universe is all vibrations. Even Western sciences agree on that, right? So different vibrations are different musical notes, right? Like musical notes. So. Western science started at the left end of the keyboard with matter, trying to study matter and building a universe from it, while Eastern science, as you'll see, starts at the top end of the keyboard. Western science is up to electromagnetic energy, which they finally, that was considered woo-woo stuff. It used to be stage demonstrations, magnetism, and all this kind of stuff, and then came into the world of science when it became measurable because Western science, everything has to be measurable to be real. Now, the zero-point energy field is now part of science, and that's a little bit up the keyboard, higher vibrations. And then, eventually, we have mind-spirit consciousness. Western science can't see that far. Eastern science says mind-spirit consciousness just slows down the vibrations. That's how you get a world of matter. It slows the vibrations down through electromagnetic energy and into matter. And I like this model very well 
And it's interesting that we as humans can play this whole keyboard. Has anyone ever read a book called Meetings with the Archangel by Stephen Mitchell? He's Byron Katie's husband. Some of you have heard of Byron Katie's work. In that book, it starts with a man writing a book against angels, and then an angel walks into the yard, and they have long conversations. And the angel says something like, don't look to us angels for compassion. We can't even feel passion. You need a human material body to vibrate passion, to vibrate the emotions. We angels can only play, in my language, in the high keys. Very interesting. And when young people are suicidal, as all intelligent young people go through a phase that, where they want out of here, stop the planet, I want to get off, I say, well, the only problem with that is that you won't be able to play the whole keyboard anymore. You can teach yourself to go out of body and come back. But if you destroy your body, you'll never be able to play this whole keyboard. And they get it. They get it. So if we adopt that kind of a scientific story, we can see our Earth, we can see our universe all as alive and intelligent. And many scientists now are seeing Earth as alive as its evolved creatures. So what we really need is a science of economics. As I do at my second international symposium on the Symposium on the Foundations of Science aimed at building a global consortium of different but equal sciences, like the religions acknowledge each other. The science has to learn to do that too. I said to the Islamic scientists at the second symposium, you have a right to teach Islamic science, but you have to get up and do it, and you have to do something Western science hasn't done, because they're not going to give you credentials as a science. You can teach their science side by side with yours. They're really good at engineering and mechanics, but they're lousy when it comes to health and food supplies and stuff, because they don't understand life. They only understand machinery. And I said, do a science of economics. We really need to study nature to see how, think of the body economics that you're walking around in based on you know, mature living systems. Everybody has all these hugely complex cellular systems, you know, up to 100 trillion cooperating cells. And we need only to study the economics of what we're walking around in, with every cell having 30,000 recycling centers to keep your proteins healthy day and night. These mitochondria are the bankers in your cell. They're giving out ATP, which is the equivalent of stored value debit cards, that you go out and spend into the economy, and then you take it to the bank, and instead of having to repay your loan, they give you a new one. They put more money on the card because the goal of, of having, the reason for having money is to keep the economy going so you don't have to carry your cow on your back to the guy who sells corn and, you know, when you really have to take the corn to the shoemaker to get the shoes you wanted in the first place. That's why you use money. It works. So it's an energy currency that works beautifully and it's free in your body. And from this evolutionary perspective, I ask, can our economics become like our body economies? Why not? Look at how nature does economics according to the medieval poet Hafiz. Even after all this time, the sun never once says to earth, earth, you owe me. 
Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. That's how we can be in the future. That's what our heritage says we can be. Remember how the cycle goes. We're due now, because of the crises we've created, for building a new unity, a global economy, but not one with a central government, any more than the nucleus in your cells is not a central government. It's not dictatorship. It's an information clearinghouse so that the body knows what's needed where and all the cells can participate actively. So what I'm looking for is an ecosophy. Now, the word ecology comes from ecos in Greek, which means household, and it's ecos and logos. The logos is the design, the logic of the household. Okay, so ecology is the household organization. Economy is household management because nomos means the rules. So the, how you run the household is your economy. We should never have separated those. Worse yet, we should never have made ecology subservient to human economy, to see nature as a set of resources for human use. It has to be the other way around, where we fit our economy into the ecology, building an ecosophy, which comes from the wise household, Sophia, ecosophy, the wisdom household. So, to conclude, we've brought a perfect storm of crises on ourselves. And what do we do now? We have to build our lifeboats, collaborate, take action. And many of you are through permaculture, through transition towns, through cooperatives like Sri Lanka's uh, Sarvodia movement, where 15,000 villages cooperate on the principles of inner peace and generosity, the opposite of the libertarian greed. No one can take anything away from me. What have I got to give? These are the kind of choices we have now. The sun is setting on the age of empire. We started with emperors. We went to national empires. Now we're in corporate empires. It's over. Even this past week, the top people in the oil companies are talking about nothing but the end of the oil age. They're getting it. This is the year of transition. It's a major year of transition. We're moving from the yang or youthful, competitive, controlling, mineurs, monoculture, fear and scarcity, to the age of yin, where we do mature cooperation and there's more messiness and mystery, and it's about we and ours and diversity and creativity and love and abundance, that's what we're moving toward because we unbalanced it all in, on the yang side. And now we have to redress it from the inside and integrate ourselves into one world of differentiation, not of monoculture. Nature abhors monocultures. We don't tell everybody how to do it. Our future is wide open and it will be handled in many ways, in many places. There's going to be terrible disasters and huge work and cleanup and bailouts and all of these things. But we can, I believe, become the wise humans, the homo sapiens sapiens, by building ecosophies wherever possible in the world. 
So I see this actually as our evolutionary mandate to create caring and thriving communities within a global family, not dictating to each other, but letting each other flower and seeing how we can help each other. As Rumi said, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? And as Rumi, again, let the beauty of what you love be what you do. There are a thousand ways to kiss the earth. Don't try to change the world by making yourself do something. Change the world by letting yourself do what makes your heart sing. Then you'll become an attractor. It doesn't matter whether you're a politician or a musician or a farmer or a scientist or what. Find some way to express your new story that will harmonize with all the other new stories to create a beautiful music on our whole keyboard. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Green Spirit, why not visit our website, www.greenspirit.org.uk.